It has been three years since the January 6th events at the U.S. Capitol occurred. Since that time, close to 300 individuals have been charged with a crime by the U.S. Justice Department. Because of the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and subsequent Supreme Court decisions, defendants have a right to an attorney and, when necessary, paid for by the taxpayers. Kira Ann West has been one of those defense attorneys involved in the January 6th trials in the United States District Court of the District of Columbia. She's a graduate of Drake Law School in Des Moines, Iowa. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Book Notes Plus, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Kara Ann West, can you tell us why you decided to become a defense attorney? Uh, I can. Um, I started my career as a law clerk for a federal district judge. I then went to a U.S. attorney's office in Houston, Texas. I quit my job there to raise two little boys. And when I was not working, I was uh, asked to find a lawyer for someone I knew in the Chicago area who had been accused of a crime that I believed that he did not commit. And I felt from my experience as a federal prosecutor that this would never have been charged uh, in Houston where I worked. And it really interested me and piqued my curiosity. And I thought, well, this this is fun. I, I want to do this. And that's how I became a defense lawyer. How long have you been doing it? Uh, I started my defense work in 2004. How about the, the law part of this? Why did you become a lawyer? Um, the honest answer is I was a piano major in college, piano performance, and it was too difficult to compete. Uh, there were so many great pianists and one of my college professors, Dr. Israel said, well, why don't you do an intern? You have all the skills of a lawyer. Why don't you do an internship at a DA's office? I did it. I worked on a murder case. It fascinated me. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. How did you get involved in the January 6th trials? Um, I am on a list of court-appointed lawyers uh, in federal court in Washington, D.C., and have been doing that for many years. And when they started being charged, uh, the public defender here, A.J. Kramer, uh, put an email out asking us all to take these cases. And um, some lawyers said no, no thank you. And but I was one of the lawyers that said I'd be happy to do it. How many have you done? Um, of my own personal cases where I'm lead counsel, I've had over 20 cases. Um, but I'm also helping lawyers around the country uh, in a pro hoc vice uh, status, which that means 
you know, a lot of the people that were at January 6th are from other states and they hire lawyers in Ohio, Idaho, New York, and those lawyers are not licensed or practiced in DC. So uh, they've reached out to me and I help them with their cases. So probably 35 of those, over 30 for sure. What's your opinion of this whole enterprise, which I suspect is the largest uh, effort like this ever by this Justice Department? Wow, that's a big question. Um, my opinion is that um, this is a serious uh, crime that has to be uh, accounted for. A very, very dark day in American history. Um, but I believe what I've experienced as a defense lawyer, which I've experienced for years, is that there is quite a bit of government overreach as far as who they're prosecuting and what they're charging them with. Can you explain that? I can. Um, I've represented uh, a lot of individuals who, I would say the majority of my clients, none of them had uh, January 6th clients. They have no criminal history. They did not engage in any violence on January 6th. Uh, some simply went into the building, turned around and went out. Many were in for a very short period of time, less than 20 minutes. Yet the government is charging them with felony um, charges that uh, you could get up to 20 years in prison for. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, and in the beginning, I had a really hard time because I felt like uh, many people that the people who were responsible for January 6th were not being uh, accountable for their actions, but that's changing, has changed. So uh, that that's that's the best description I can say. Now, the people that engaged in violence, sure, prosecute them, give them years in the federal penitentiary. They deserve it. Absolutely. People that broke down windows and, and, and hurt police officers. Absolutely. But a lot of these people were mere bystanders and really did nothing. And they're being charged with felonies, which I, I find uh, really unfair. What's the difference between representing a single client in a courtroom where you're the only defense attorney in there versus, I know in one case I saw you in a room with four or five defense attorneys. What's the difference between doing it either way? Well, um, when you only have one person that you're representing, which is generally the case, and you're the only lawyer, you have a lot more control over what's going on at your table. Uh, but when you are uh, co-counsel with four or five other lawyers, you have to be so conscious of what their arguments are, what their defenses are, what are they saying bad things about your client? Are they making the appropriate objections at the appropriate time? Uh, are they making the judge mad? I mean, there's all kinds of things that go into that. So you really have to be on your toes in both cases, but really critical when you have all these other lawyers and personalities. What do you think on that first day when you have a client at the table and the judge comes in and begins the process? I think uh, how privileged I am and what an honor it is to practice in uh, the federal court in Washington, D.C. I still get willies when a uh, judge takes the bench and it's fun. Um, I think that depending upon whose court you're in, I know that uh, if it's a certain judge, well, my client is more than likely going to be found guilty because the judge hates these cases. 
Or if I'm in another court and there's a judge that's more open-minded, I'll say, I've got a chance here, um, bring it on. How powerful are these judges in the district court? Um, federal judges are the most powerful people in this country. Uh, it's a mis general misconception of uh, non-lawyers that you know judges are just judges, but Article Three judges, the, the article in the Constitution that gives them uh, power and life appointments, uh, makes them the most powerful people in, in the country. And I mean, more powerful than any senator, more powerful than the president. They wield a stick that is bigger than any. Why? Because that's the way our system of government is set up. Um, and that's what the Constitution says. So they have a lifetime appointment. It gives them a lot of leeway. Um, and some exercise it and some don't. So well, what is normally your relationship with a judge? Do you, what I'm getting at is, do you see them outside of court? Do you meet with them in, the, in their chambers? Or you, do you just see them in the courtroom? Uh, that depends on the judge. Um, Federal court is very formal. Um, so you don't, lawyers don't have quote unquote relationships generally with federal judges. Um, I've been practicing law in that courthouse now for 13 years, I think 14 years. And so I have relationships with certain judges um, that I have met with in chambers. Some judges are open to that. Um, and there are other judges that I wouldn't even think about uh, going to chambers and asking them uh, a question. I just wouldn't do it just based on who they are. Uh, but I clerked for a federal judge and I was super fortunate um, that uh, he taught me that federal judges are just like anybody else. We're, we're no better than anyone else. And uh, so I, I, I am not reticent to approach a federal judge. Um, I have approached a couple of them just to ask how I could do a better job and they were both just wonderful in, in speaking with me. Um, some judges are more fun than others. And at this stage in my career, I'm towards the end. I kind of like to go to courts where I like to have fun and enjoy the judge and learn. I always want, I'm always learning. And so I kind of gravitate towards those courts. As you know, anybody can come to the DC District Court and watch a trial. What would you advise somebody, knowing what you know, if they come to this courtroom, what, what are they going to see and what should they, how should they prep for it? Um, I, I don't know if there's, uh, if you're a historian or a professor, I, I would say you should prep for it by reading about that judge or reading about the case. Uh, doing some research on that. But if you're like an average citizen and you just kind of want to see how the process works, um, I think you just go down and, and kind of watch what happens. Um, January 6th cases have really drawn a lot of people from the general public because they're interested, they're curious as to what's going on, which is unusual. It's not the usual case with all my other cases I have. Uh, people aren't really interested in somebody who's... Uh, uh, come over the border or somebody who is into international drug trafficking. We just don't get people from the general public generally sitting in there. We get classes of law students, uh, law professors, things like that. Um, 
But uh, I, I think people, I wish people were more engaged um, and, and knew more and could see how this happens. But we're in a bubble here in Washington, D.C. When I travel home to Chicago or I go to Texas or California, people will say to me, are you still working on that January 6th stuff? I mean, they, they don't have any concept of it's completely taken over my life. Um, so uh, I, I wish people at, you know, the Zoom during COVID really helped because people could get in the public line and, and listen. And, and I encourage people to do that so that they could understand the process. But um, my, my advice would be just, just to get more involved. Here we are in January of 2024. Do you have now anybody to defend in this coming year? Oh my, yes. I have a trial that starts January 2nd. Um, I think Judge Lambert forgot that the uh, football championships were January 1st, but that's okay. <laughs> so I'll be starting in his court January 2nd. I have a trial in front of Judge Howell, February 12th, and I have a trial in front of Judge Contreras, May 27th, and I may have another one coming up. Are these all January 6th? Yes, sir, they are. And. What's the difference between somebody who is paid as a public defender versus somebody who's sitting at the table with you who has a lawyer that's getting megabucks? Um, you know, when you start out uh, being a lawyer, you, you don't, you know, some lawyers do it for the money, some do it because they are interested in the law and like the challenge. Um, if I had gone into law to be uh, a rich person, I would have gone to a law firm. Um, I had the credentials, I had offers, I could have done it. But it was more interesting for me to uh, represent people who are, um, you know, they, they're marginalized by society. They can't advocate for themselves. And that's very, very satisfying for me. Uh, so do I make a lot of money when I'm court appointed? No. Is it enough to live on? Yes. Um, so, uh, but the people who make mega bucks, um, I, I don't know about the, the difference. Uh, they're just making a lot more money. Um, uh, they don't necessarily do a better job. I mean, to be a court appointed lawyer on the CJA list in Washington, DC, uh, there's a committee of, of lawyers that uh, vet those people on that list. You have to be highly qualified and competent and it, 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 one thing the general public doesn't know, they're like, oh, I've got a court-appointed lawyer, I better get a private one. That is just so untrue. Some of the finest lawyers you're gonna find in this country are working in uh, public defender, federal public defender offices um, and court-appointed lawyers on the CJA list. So uh, that that's a common misconception. Um, so, uh, and of course, in Washington, DC, you're, you, I mean, I, I just pinch myself when I'm in that courthouse because I'm watching some of the finest lawyers in the country whenever I'm down there, and that's really special. What's the difference between a district court judge and a circuit court judge? Um, a district court judge is a generally a trial court. that They hear cases uh, in the first instance. A circuit court judge is also known as a court of appeals. For example, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, that's the appellate court judge. Those circuit judges hear a case on appeal from the district court and the circuit court judges, they sit in a panel initially of three judges that hear the arguments of each side from the district court. So the circuit court is considered a more powerful court um, because it has the, po the power to overturn 
or reverse that district court. Um, and the circuit court here in DC, the DC circuit uh, is known as the second most important uh, court in the land because um, of so many feeders to the Supreme Court. Uh, we, we get lawyers, uh, judges from the DC circuit going on to the Supreme Court and so on. So um, that's the difference. Go back to the first day when they choose the jury. What are you doing when that happens? Um, I am very uh, carefully watching people when they file into the courtroom. I'm watching their body language. I'm trying to see if I can connect with them in any way. I try to see what books they're carrying and reading. I try to see what newspapers they're reading. If they have one, um, Washington, D.C. Uh, has a really interesting population as far as the people who are on jury panels. So I am I'm watching those people and I'm looking at the jury list that the clerk, clerk gives us to figure out, you know, I know ahead of time what my ideal juror is. So I, when those people file in, I'm starting to cross them off when I see them come in. Initially, I'll put a question mark if I, I think that person's not a good candidate. What kind of power do you have when the selection begins? Um, you know, that's that's something the lawyers actually do have power over. Um, in federal court, unlike state courts around the country, uh, at least the federal court here, the judges do the voir dire. They do the questioning. Um, but I get to pick uh, the jury uh, members that I want, which is uh, really, really important. But how does that work? In other words, you, you can't pick all 12. No, no, no. So uh, we get a list. Uh, the judge will say, for example, OK, we need to get through juror 44 to get uh, 12 jurors and two alternates. Uh, defense generally has 10 strikes. The government generally has six. So we strike who we don't want. We we the judge. We answer all kinds of questions um, from the judge that the jury people do and what they have before they come in is they have a list that they've been sent ahead of time that they have to fill out that says, you know, where do you work? What's your job? Do you Have you ever been a violent, a victim crime? I'm sorry, a, a victim of violent crime. Have you um, had any member of your family serve in the police? Are, are you a member of any such a uh, police uh, association? Those kinds of questions. And when you, when, when you read those questions, you get a sense uh, and the answers, you get a sense of what that person is like. And then it, there's people that, you know, they have, they want to explain more, but they don't want to do it in public. Those people are generally brought up to the bench. The judge asks some more personal questions about their answers and, and the lawyers can often follow up. The judge will look at each lawyer and say, okay, do you have any follow-up questions of this person? And we ask questions and that way we're able to uh, figure out if this person is uh, the best candidate for our jury. What do you say to the people who follow these cases uh, on the Trump side of things that suggest that this is an overwhelmingly Democrat party town, that 92 percent of the people voted for Joe Biden, that a lot of the judges were appointed by either President Obama uh, or even President Biden, and that everything's going to be against them. What, what do you say to either your friends or the public or your client? Um, 
they shouldn't worry about uh, judges that were appointed by President Obama. Um, uh, some of the best judges we have in the building, in my opinion, were appointed uh, by uh, President Obama. But uh, you can't argue with statistics. Um, Michael Lewis and Moneyball taught us that. And, you know, this is a democratic town. People here are Democrats. Uh, you, I don't think you can get a fair trial in this town if you were there. Uh, culturally, people in Washington, D.C. are very, very different than the rest of this country. Um, and uh, it's been my experience. I mean, I, I, I set out with a really positive attitude thinking, OK, I can argue to this jury. I've done it a million times. How hard can it be? Well, it's really hard. <laughs> Uh, they don't want to hear, uh, especially if your case has anything to do with firearms. The judge lets in any evidence that has that your person has a gun. Okay, th th that's it. You're a domestic terrorist. We don't have to listen to any other evidence. We don't have to know about anything. Forget it. So I, I think it's really, really a tough sell in this town to, to pitch your case to a jury. Now, a couple of people have had uh, super, super rare uh, have had a couple of counts of not guilty, but that's that's pretty rare. I've gotten not guilty counts from judges, not from juries. Would you rather have a bench trial, meaning the judge only is there to make the decision, or a jury? Um, that depends on the judge that you draw, but I would say nine out of ten times, I definitely would rather have a bench trial. Why? Um, these judges, uh, you know, they're smart. Um, they're very, very smart, um, the judges on the district court, and the majority of them are super fair and will listen to your argument and will look at the evidence um, in, a, in a fair way. Uh, whether they were appointed by Reagan or Obama uh, or Bush, um, you know, it, it, it really, that really is not the case, uh, what, what president appointed you, that we've We've been surprised all over the place in that sense. When do you first talk with or meet in person your client? I try to do it as soon as possible. Uh, you know, I have clients in California, so that's hard. Uh, clients in Texas, hard again. But I, I make it a, a point to meet them in person. Uh, it was really hard during the pandemic, but now um, that, that um, people travel more. Uh, but I try to meet right in the beginning and get a sense of uh, who this person is, why they did what they did on January 6th, and how can I help them? What do you tell them? As, you know, as they're coming into the court for those first few days, what instructions do you have for them sitting at that table with you? Um, I tell them to be respectful, to pay attention to my instructions, uh, ask me any question you want. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Um, when you're ever really, if you're charged with a crime, ask me anything you want. Um, uh, I really tell every client I have, no matter if it's January 6th or any other case, keep your mouth shut. Don't talk to the press. Don't talk on the phone to your friends about your case, especially if you're in jail. Don't talk on those phones because they're being recorded. And you know, by and large, most of my clients uh, follow the rules. 
I have in my hand, and we're talking uh, at the end of December, uh, recording this, I have in my hand a sheet uh, from the court for this day and all the activities from the different judges and all that any, anybody in the public can see. And I counted up, there are 50 different events on this day in the district court here in town. And of course, a lot of them are January 6th cases. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is because it appears like Judge Chutkin, who's supposed to sit if the court uh, trial for Donald Trump on the January 6th starts on March 4th, but she's in court every day with other cases that have nothing to do with January 6th. What's your opinion of how they keep track of all this? You can see her sitting there dealing with somebody that has a drug issue or a gun issue, and then there's nobody in the court, nobody's following it at all, and then the next day when she gets to the Trump trial type things, the place is full. Um, well, not only are these judges extremely smart, they're very hardworking. Uh, you know, if you're in trial with Judge Maida, you better be at the courthouse at no later than 8 a.m. and you're going to stay after six or seven. That's just how it works. Uh, they work hard. Um, so they also have law clerks and um, the law clerks uh, are also, they're all Ivy Leaguers. They're all super smart and they work hard. So their law clerks are keeping track of what's happening. Their courtroom deputies who are also hardworking, they, they keep track of all that. So they have a staff that, you know, kind of, I, I mean, I wasn't a law clerk here, but they, they keep track of things. Plus you have the clerk's office on the first floor. I mean, the, the, the people in that courthouse are just, uh, I can't say enough positive things about them and how they work. What's, what's the part of a trial that you don't like? I think that the part that I am most disinterested in is opening statement. Um, because you can't do much. You can only tell the jury, oh, we think the evidence is going to show this. And, and you're, you're constrained by the rules or certain things you can't say. You can't talk about ev certain evidence because it's not in evidence. Um, so th that's probably my least uh, favorite thing. There, there's a, I, I saw a quote from you um, that has to do with this appeal on the obstruction issue. I'm going to ask you first what it is, but also I see you saying this is a watershed day. And you said this a couple of weeks ago when the uh, Supreme Court agreed to hear this case. What, what were you talking about? What is this obstruction issue and the Supreme Court? Well, um, there's a case um, in the D.C. Circuit uh, that was appealed to the D.C. Circuit, um, United States versus Fisher. And uh, the D.C. Circuit held that the statute 18 U.S.C. 1512C does apply to these January 6th cases because, you know, when we started these January 6th cases, the, the government starts charging all these statutes that none of us have ever seen before. I mean, most of us, I should say, 99 percent of us. So our, our argument is, well, this doesn't really apply to people protesting. This This statute applies to people who are fixing trials or testifying falsely who are obstructing an official proceeding. And the DC circuit panel said, no, 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 that's not right. Uh, it, it does apply to uh, January 6th protesting. Okay, so that case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court and, and a petition of certiorari is how you appeal 
your case to the Supreme Court. What is and, that? What does that mean, Sociori? Uh, it, it means that uh, it, it's a it, the, the the appellant is asking the court to hear their case, uh, and and you know cert I think is granted in less than one percent of cases. I'm not sure about that, but it's 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 almost impossible to have the Supreme Court hear your case. And I said it was watershed because they granted cert. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so the question uh, presented in the petition for certiorari is. Did the D.C. Circuit err in construing 18 U.S.C. 1512, which prohibits obstruction of congressional inquiries and investigations to include acts unrelated to investigation and evidence? Uh, that's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo, but basically the court is saying, hey, we're not sure the D.C. Circuit got this right. We're going to we're going to hear argument in this case and we're going to decide it. So for January 6th defendants, what this means is, hey, even though you were convicted of this, the Supreme Court might throw it out. So if that's the case, if that's how it works out, a lot of people with felony convictions are going to have those convictions reversed, which is a big deal. Is it automatic that they'll have them reversed? Um, I don't I don't know that it's automatic. Um, I think that um it, it automatic i don't know if that's too strong of a word but i i think pretty much that they what they would do say for example if the person has already been sentenced that case would have to that defendant would have to be resentenced without that 1512 count and uh so it, all, the, the courts the district court then would have to rehear all these cases again and so what we as defense lawyers have done is said hey I have all these trials set in 2024, but what if the Supreme Court says that 1512 isn't viable anymore? Then why have that trial? Um, so that's kind of the posture where, where we are right now. This week earlier, Judge Maida and Judge Nichols both continued cases uh, with these statutes, 1512, um, until after the Supreme Court uh, makes a decision. So. I don't know of other judges that have or if they will. What does continued mean? Uh, continued means uh, like, 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 say, for example, I just told you I had a, a case set January 2nd. Uh, continued means it would be set farther down the road, uh, maybe to July or August. So let's go back for just for a minute to your early days. Where is home for you originally? Um, I was born and raised in Morris, Illinois, a small farming town uh, south of Chicago. Where did you go to college? I went to Illinois Wesleyan in Bloomington, Illinois, which is a small uh, liberal arts school. And your major there was? Uh, piano performance. Do you still play the piano? Not like I used to. <laughs> um, not like I, I, when I retire, I just bought a clavichord. I'm going to uh, try to try to learn that and we'll go back to my piano playing. Where did you get interest in the interested in piano? Um, I was a little kid in Illinois and I had a lot of energy and uh, uh, somebody suggested that I take piano lessons uh, there. It, I was raised in the Presbyterian Church and my, there was a lady there that taught piano who also went to Illinois Wesleyan. And she was my piano teacher. And um, 
I, I liked it. I was in church every Sunday playing the piano or singing in the choir. And uh, I just loved it. Did you have any knowledge or interest in the law when you were in college? I, I did. Um, I think after my sophomore year of college, I started taking more history and I took a philosophy course. I also had a, uh, took a lot of Spanish. So I, I, I did think, well, maybe law school would be a good idea. I wasn't sure about it. Uh, but then I did an internship and, and that cemented it for me. And where did you go to law school? I went to Drake in Iowa. Um, I'm from a Scandinavian family, Norwegian. And so I had to pay for my own college. I had to pay for my own law school. Uh, Drake gave me the most money and free room and board. So that's where I went. And then from there, you were talking about Texas. What what drew you to Texas? Um, I knew when I was in law school that um, I should clerk for a federal judge. Um, and I couldn't afford to live in sh downtown Chicago. I was offered a, a clerkship there, but uh, I, I couldn't afford it at the time. I had an aunt that lived in Houston. I could live with her for free. Um, so I applied to every federal district judge in Texas. I was super fortunate. Uh, several judges offered me jobs and I clerked for uh, Kenneth Hoyt in Houston, who at the time was the only black federal judge in the state of Texas. Uh, that was a fabulous experience, uh, life-changing for me. Why? Um, I had only, you know, I went, I'd only been around white people, uh, college, law school, pretty much. Uh, and then there I was in Houston. I was the only white person in chambers. Um, and I, I learned a lot. Um, my people, uh, my judge was under the spotlight all the time just because of the color of his skin. That's ridiculous. Um, but I had never considered anything like that before. Uh, it just had never been on my um, radar. So uh, that was a super powerful um, experience for me. Uh, and I still have a very close relationship with my judge and the secretary that worked for him. What court was it? It was a district court in the Southern District of Texas in Houston. A U.S. district court? Yes, sir. And... As I know, when I sit in the court, I wonder how many people are behind that judge I see up in front of the court. Can you answer that question? I mean, mm. how, when it comes to clerks, how many clerks do these U.S. District Court judges have here in Washington? I think they have three. I think when I was a clerk, you could only have two. But I think the district judges get three. And I think this, they can they can get another one if they don't have a secretary or something like that. And I love talking to these law clerks. Um, the, the, every single one of them went to Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Penn. It's just ridiculous. I mean, I'll never meet a Drake Law School graduate who's a law clerk for one of those judges. It's just not going to happen. How much of what a judge reads in court is written by a clerk? I think that depends upon the judge. Um, you know, some of these judges are, I'm sure, great writers, and some of them probably would leave that to their clerks. Uh, uh, I don't, I, I'm just not sure. Um, but, you know, all these these people can uh, uh, write. So 
Uh, I think it depends on the individual uh, judge. So once a trial starts, how many clerks work on that particular trial for a judge? You know, it, I think it's it's courtroom by courtroom, um, and it depends upon how fun or exciting the trial is. Uh, I think that generally a law clerk is assigned to the case. And then if the case is big, I'm sure the judge will draw on another law clerk to do certain things on that case. I, I'm not sure. But um, in the last case I tried, all three law clerks were in the courtroom a, a large part of the time. And then uh, there's you five or six interns sometimes for that judge. So they'll be sitting there um, watching the trial or doing certain things. And I, I, these judges give these uh, law students opportunities uh, in their courtrooms that are just phenomenal. I mean, it, it's just great to be able to sit there and watch that uh, as an intern. What do you think of the prosecutor? <laughs> that depends on the prosecutor. <laughs> Uh, In general, what do you think of, of these government prosecutors that are trying these January 6th uh, trials? Uh, that's fascinating. Um, I have met, so it, it's so huge that the D.C. Uh, U.S. Attorney's Office can't handle it. So they've uh, recruited prosecutors from all over the country. And I have met some of the nicest, nicest people, uh, prosecutors, just just lovely um, in D.C., and things are more laid back in, say, Utah, okay? In D.C., it, it's war, generally. Um, the, these prosecutors, not all of them, but they're, they're, they're pretty, pretty much, uh, they're, they're coming after you. Why? That's a good question. Um, I, I, uh, I, I guess maybe they're true believers in some sense. Um, uh, uh, they just, uh, I, I don't know what it is. Um, but they're not all like that, but, but many are. Have you seen <laughs> anywhere, I've tried to find it, uh, the cost of this January 6th Justice Department U.S. Attorney effort. We're now at over 1,300 individuals who have been charged in one way or the other. Why have they spent all the, I mean, and, have you seen a, a dollar figure anywhere? I, I have not. And that's um, that kind of goes to what I said earlier about overreach. I mean, we're spending so much money on misdemeanor cases. I, I think in my whole career, I've had one misdemeanor case in federal court before January 6th. Now I have tons of them. Um, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be prosecuted. They should. I'm just saying, you know, to the extent that they're prosecuted and the discovery that goes into it and the number of hearings you have to have, it's it's remarkable. Um, so it, it's 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 a huge economic drain. Um, there's no question about it. Um, and and I think some of the uh, judges have brought up the fact that, you know, there was a lot of damage done to the Capitol and you're only charging these people 500 bucks uh, restitution. I think that's a solid argument. Um, th there was a lot of damage done to the Capitol. Um, so, you know, that that's for so somebody other than I to, to do that, <laughs> decide that. So the media, what is your personal um, philosophy about talking to the media during a case? Um, 
ever since I was a very young prosecutor, uh, my my policy's always been don't talk to the media. Uh, they're never going to help you. They're going to twist your words, and uh, that's usually been my my mantra. But um, I've I've I I have talked to the media a couple times um, in January six cases. Uh, once was out of just sheer frustration um, with how the government was proceeding in a case. Um, and um, so I, I try not to talk to the media, but uh, I, I have broken that rule. And why do you think they get it? Do they get it wrong or they just don't help when they report on these cases? Um, I think that I think there's been some really excellent uh, reporting um, and uh, it's not that they get it wrong, it's that they don't tell the full story all the time. Um, and I'm always wanting to say, gee, I'd love to email that guy and tell him, you know, what about this? <laughs> but I don't. Um, but by and large, uh, you know, if they would give both sides of the story, uh, I'd feel better about uh, the reporting. And some of the media, you know, they're, they're name calling certain judges. I mean, there's just no place for that. I mean, it's just unprofessional. Why, why say something, call a federal judge a name? I mean, that's just silly. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that perhaps we could do a little better. So if, when you're sitting there and it's getting near the, the closing, what, I mean, and you know what the jury is, you know what their politics is what are you thinking about the closing and how do you approach that? What do you say that you think might change their mind when they get into the jury room? You know, I, I try to harp on uh, the burden of proof, which is in a criminal case, uh, the, the hardest burden is beyond a reasonable doubt and try to tell them, oh, well, you know, if there's a little evidence that this happened, that's not enough. It's got to be, you got to be pretty sure about it. And I try to point, you know, to the evidence that helps my case. Um, and um, I try to do it in the most convincing way possible. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. What do you tell your clients at sentencing about what they should say in front of the judge and does it make any difference ever? Um, it does make a difference. Uh, but the problem is in cases where you're going to appeal your case, which in my, with my clients, many of them have appealed to the DC circuit. Uh, you, you don't want to say something that is going to hurt your appellate uh, case. So you're constrained in that sense, but judges I have found, um, really, um, like when criminal defendants uh, t tell the court and others that they're sorry, real remorse. And what's hurt criminal defendants in January 6 cases is you've had a couple of criminal defendants early on be sentenced, gotten the break in their sentence and said to the judge, oh, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. Then they go on TV the next day on some news program and say, oh, that I don't mean any of that, blah, blah, blah. So then the court says, well, hey, I'm not going to give that other person a break because I don't know if your remorse is true or not. Um, that's really hurt us, uh, which is unfortunate. I wish um, that hadn't happened. Um, but 
And by and large, judges really like it if you are remorseful and that that uh, remorse is sincere. Uh, when the Proud Boys were sentenced and Dominic Pozzola was in, <clears throat> he was convicted and he was in front of the judge, he was remorseful. And when the, that particular session was over and the judge left the room, as he's walking out of the room, he's been convicted, he puts his fist in the air and says, Trump won. And that's kind of the example you're giving as when a defendant, what would you do if you had a defendant that would do that and you were representing them? Would you follow through and represent them on a, an appeal? Um, probably not. Uh, if you, I, I tell every, every client when I first meet them two things. Uh, the first thing is you have to tell me the truth. If I find out that you've lied to me about something, I'm going to withdraw from your case. Secondly, um, and this applies mostly to my people in, in jail, but to everybody I say, and this is unconstitutional, but I tell them, you have to go to church. I don't care what church it is. Uh, you can go to the Catholic church, the Muslim, I don't care where you go. But you have to engage with community in some sense to help yourself and to help others. Um, and if they follow the rules, um, I'm going to do the best job I can for you. Um, I... I uh, I have found throughout my life personally um, that the church uh, lifted me up, always has, um, and faith is a super important thing for me. And I, I'm not just going to be your criminal defense lawyer. My goal is for you to have a, 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 the best possible life possible when this is over. And so I encourage my clients to find uh, something that they can uh, believe in and be uh, lifted up by. What if they say to you, I don't believe? Um, that's fine. You have every right not to believe. Um, that, that's, I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, one of my favorite uh, journalists of all time is uh, Christopher Hitchens, a non-believer. Um, so I totally respect that. Um, but I think when you're facing a criminal uh, indictment, uh, you need to rally people that will love you, will rally around you, uh, are oftentimes found in the church. Are you, are you political? Uh, I was as a young person. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I am now. Uh, I was when I lived uh, in Texas. Um, but when George W. Bush told uh, criminal defendants that they couldn't have lawyers at, at Guantanamo. That was it for me. I I uh, I couldn't stand behind the Republican Party way back then. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I I wouldn't say that I'm political now, um, but I think that our, our our country is definitely fractured right now by politics. Go back to what you said about George Bush and the. Def they couldn't have lawyers. The defendants down in Guantanamo. Why did they? Why did he do that? Oh, I I, I think because that they were, uh, and I could be wrong about this, but I think it's because they were defined as enemy combatants, and somebody wrote a memo that says if you're if you're an enemy combatant, you, you don't you don't get a lawyer, or if you're not a U.S. citizen, or something like that. I don't remember. I mean, that was twenty something years ago, but I remember reading about it at the time, saying to myself, well, well that's not right. You get a lawyer, whether you're a citizen or not, or and you're being held and, and charged in, in the United States, you get a lawyer. 
Um, so that was um, that was a problem for me. Of the 20 some cases you've been involved with with January the 6th, uh, once it's over and done, can you talk about them or do you talk about them? I won't talk about my case. I could. Uh, I won't talk about my cases until I'm done with all of them, uh, which is going to be sometime next year. Um, there, there's, uh, you know, I, I, I think um, just me talking to you today uh, uh, is is a is a stretch, um, and I I think that I should be. Uh, cautious in the future and talk about a specific case or a specific client. Um, I, I Clients have asked me to speak to the press. Uh, I've told them I'm not going to speak to the press. Um, I've asked clients to please not speak to the press. Um, so um, it, I, I will when the time is appropriate. Let, let me go back to, I kind of asked this in the beginning, when I ask it again, uh, for people coming to the court, give us some tips as to what to look for in the middle of one of these trials at the judge level, at the jury level. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I mean, I sat in on the Proud Boys case and the Oath Keepers, not the not the uh, Stuart Rhodes Oath Keepers, but the one after that. And in the Proud Boys case, they all were dressed up in coats and ties. And so were the marshals, and the marshals were surrounding them. And you, you did, if you're an outsider, you knew they were in jail. In the, one of the Oath Keepers' case, they weren't in jail, and so there were no marshals sitting around them. I would ask first, why don't they let the jury know they're in jail? What, and I've, I've seen that in other cases. What's, what's the point? Um, there's, there's a case that says, um, you know, and this all stems from innocent until proven guilty, it's a case that says it, it's a reversible error to tell the jury that they're currently incarcerated because that goes to guilt. It, it, if you weren't guilty, the judge wouldn't put you in jail waiting trial. I mean, uh, so it, it's unfortunate that you noticed that there were marshals in suits uh, in one case and not in another because then clearly the jury could figure that out too. Um, uh, so what would I tell a person to look for? I would, uh, somebody gave me advice, great advice when I was a very young lawyer. They said, what you need to do, the best criminal defense lawyer in Houston is Dick DeGuerin. You need to go watch him in court. And so I would take vacation time when I was a federal prosecutor and I would go down to the state courthouse and I would watch Dick DeGuerin. And I'm telling you, what an education. So I would tell people here, you know, if if they asked, you know, what lawyers to watch. Um, we're all not created equal. Uh, there are some lawyers that are really incredible, and I would tell them to watch certain lawyers. Um, I would tell them uh, to keep an eye on the court uh, to, to see what, how the judge treats it. After a few days, in some courts, you, you can tell what lawyer is making the judge mad and what lawyer isn't. Um, and um, I would watch the jury to see uh, their expressions when someone testifies. Um, I think that whether or not that person is believable uh, and how it affects everybody. Um, I tell my clients when they're in court, 
uh, we call it a game face. They said, you know, you can't make an expression when somebody testifies about something falsely. You can't, you just gotta just really check your face, be respectful and try not to, you know, send a message to somebody because that's not, that's not why we're here. When Kevin, <clears throat> excuse me, Kevin McCarthy was speaker, he released some of the video to the public from the January 6th event. And now currently, this speaker says <clears throat> he's releasing everything. I'm speaking for myself. I haven't seen much of this bit that's been released. But I would ask you, um, what, when you heard this, what was your reaction? And do you, as a defense attorney, have access to all that video? And as you plan for a, a, a trial, um, I'm I'm a big believer in uh, the public's right to know. Um, so are the federal courts. Um, the D.C. Circuit is huge on it. Um, so uh, that doesn't bother me. Um, but I, I I think that the public has a right to know uh, what 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 went on. Do I have access to it? I do. Uh, there is a program set up just for defense counsel called Relativity. Um, it's so complicated and hard to use that I I hired a lawyer to do it for me, uh, who's an expert in it, uh, Ms. Kubich. Nicole Kubich, she's a uh, University of Texas lawyer. Uh, she practices law with me and she's become an expert. I mean, she she she's an expert on these films and I've watched thousands of hours of January 6th tape, but she can condense it, tell us what's relevant. There's no way we can ever look at the gazillions of, of hours of what this, what happened January 6th. But with the advantage of facial recognition, the government can say, okay, here's the, here's the 10 videotapes that apply to your client. And that's kind of what the judges have gravitated for to. They're like, okay, if this is specific to your client, what more do you need? um is i've heard from the bench um so i have access to it uh, i've tried to watch all that i can um sometimes the government thinks they've given us everything and they haven't they've missed some things sometimes it's good for our clients sometimes it's bad for our clients so um so i i i, I feel like i have um i've had to decline doing other kinds of cases because i, I you really have to see this stuff and live it to understand it can on you, a daily basis. Can you do it from your office or do you have to go somewhere? Oh no, you can do it remotely. I, I you know, in the very beginning I spent, it's like binge watching on Netflix, but it was January 6th. <laughs> how effective or how important has it been the way that prosecutors have used the video and the telephone information and the information from sites like Telegram and Rumble and all these places during these these sessions that you've been involved in? Well, um, one example is um, in, in, a, in, in a case that I tried, uh, the government entered into evidence a whole bunch of videos that had absolutely nothing to do with my client. It showed other people who were present on January 6th some guy had tattoos all over his head and his arms. And I mean, he was, he looked so scary. I couldn't stand it. And, 
and they showed video of people beating up police officers, had absolutely nothing to do with my client. My client wasn't violent. So they used these, these, this videotape to say, oh, you know, your guy was there. He's a bad apple. Um, and it works, works like a charm. Um, uh, these other um, video sites, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people there that day uh, that were journalists and, and uh, people who thought they were journalists. And they put every and, and the clients themselves, they put everything on Facebook and uh, Twitter and all these places. Um, and so that's where the government has gotten a, a lot of their evidence. Not only that, you have these uh, do-gooders, uh, people like sedition hunters that, okay, government, you missed this. Let me let me tell you about, you know, Joe Smith here and what he did on January 6th. Uh, so you, you, you've got a whole arsenal of, of uh, the public helping the government. There is nobody in the public helping me <laughs> defend my clients. Um, so, you know, it's, they use it to their, their advantage. Now, at this, I, I could say at the same time, everything my client did in the Capitol is videotaped. You, you can see he engaged in no violence. You can see he engaged in uh, no name calling. He didn't do any chanting, but people don't care. They just don't care. I want to ask you an insignificant question for somebody that's not been in a courtroom, but especially during the Proud Boys trial, the sidebar. Everything goes quiet. They put on noise in the room and all the attorneys and even the defendants pick up a phone and they talk to each other and the judge. What is that usually about? And sometimes it goes, it happens so many times, it just keeps delaying everything. Well, that's the husher. And the, the, the lawyers will want to talk about uh, the hushers, the noise. Uh, it, some piece of evidence that so before the case even gets to trial, there's tons and tons of work that has to be done. Tons of motions are filed. The judge rules on those motions. There's motion hearings. There's motions to suppress evidence that the jury's never supposed to hear about because it's so inflammatory or prejudicial. And so sometimes during a trial, the, maybe one of the prosecutors or defense lawyer forget about what the judge's order was and it, the evidence is mentioned and somebody jumps up, objection, and everybody's got to get on the phone. And, uh, it, you know, it depends upon the court. I mean, uh, an older judge, a more experienced judge is going to shut that down. They're not going to let that delay the, the trial. Uh, I think maybe uh, some of the other judges uh, may let the lawyers talk all they want, which, you know, that, that delays everything. So, uh, and it's to preserve the record. You want to make an objection. Uh, if you think the judge is making an evidentiary ruling that's mistaken, you want to protect your, what we call protect the record. We want to make a record of the judge's mistake uh, so that we can argue it on appeal. I, I assume, I, I, I've never seen it, but watching the reporter do a transcript on everything that's said in that courtroom, do you have access to that transcript? Uh, we do. Um, these court reporters, um, God bless them, they work all day and then they go home and then they have to do uh, what's called daily copy. They transcribe it at night. Um, so they're pulling the two shifts. Um, so yeah, if I order daily copy, I get it. Um, um, if I don't, I can order a 30 day transcript and depending upon what that court reporter has going on, you'll get it in a certain amount of time. Um, but you pay for that. 
How much? It depends. Uh, it, it depends if you order it daily, three day, seven day, 30 day, maybe 10 day too. Um, you know, it's a few hundred dollars or a few thousand. Does that have to come out of your pocket if you're a public defender? No, it does not. Um, but you have to get, you know, you, you don't just get it. You, the judge has to approve it. Um, How long does that take? It, again, it depends upon the judge. Uh, you know, you just you just got to keep bugging them until they till they approve it. And sometimes you don't have to bug them at all. Okay, we're we're going to wrap this up and let you go. But uh, if you could change anything in this process, especially the January sixth process, what would you change? Hmm, that's a good question. I would, I would probably ask that the discretion of the line prosecutors uh, be given a little bit more faith by their supervisors. Um, there's a lot of really good prosecutors, uh, smart, uh, fair, honest, and they're, uh, they don't have any, um, they don't have a lot of leeway in what they decide to charge or what they decide the plea process can be. Uh, I've I've had cases where they sure, certainly should have pled out. Uh, we made agreements, and then they go to the supervisory staff for approval, and they say, "No, we're not going to do that." And so I, I wish that the line prosecutors had a little bit more autonomy in in charging decisions, and in plea negotiation. That, that that's what I would change. Kira Ann West, we thank you very much for chatting with us and uh, giving us some insight into how the district court, the D.C. district court and the January 6th events are underway. And we look forward to maybe catching up again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.